Hello, fantasy and romance fans. My name is Jess, and this is Cam Cat Unwrapped. You've been listening to The Brass Queen by Elizabeth Chatsworth, which is an IBPA Benjamin Franklin Award winner in the science fiction category and has been notably mentioned by BuzzFeed and Publishers Weekly. Today, we have Elizabeth with us in our virtual studio here for an interview, and I'm very excited to chat with her. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. Great. I'm so glad that you're happy to be here. Um, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, originally, I'm from England, as you may be able to tell from my accent. <laughs> I was born in Sheffield in Yorkshire in the north of England. I grew up there and in my mid-twenties decided to emigrate to America to work. And I've been here ever since. Oh my God! I just love it here. Uh, the people are so warm and friendly, and um, it's it's become my uh, my real home now. When I go back to England, I feel like a foreigner. Oh my gosh, that's so funny! Wow. Okay, so you've been here since you were in your twenties. Yes, that's right. And then, what Which were you doing that you? Than I dare to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to ask. You never ask, right? You're always supposed to just assume. So just a few years ago, you moved here. That's so nice. Lovely. So what made you make the move here? You said for work? That's correct. And I work as a voice actor. So I've been doing that for quite a few years. Oh, amazing. Yes. It's a fun career. And I've always been an avid reader as well, so uh, when I decided to take up writing at a rather late age, I will say it, I was approaching 50, and um, I had this bucket list of things I hadn't done, and one of them was try to write a book, which I think is on many people's bucket lists. Sure. And my husband said, well, it's not too late, why don't you try? So The Brass Queen is my first attempt at writing fiction, and it got published, which is astonishing on all levels. And Um, is an award-winning book, which is also (laughs) just like, you really found what you were needing to do, I think. Absolutely. I mean, better late than never. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's so great. So are you still doing voiceover work as well? I am uh, to a certain extent. We've just moved states. I now live in New Hampshire okay. and my husband's in the process of building me a home studio. Um, and it's been a quite a long process. So at the moment, I'm a bit on hiatus until it gets done. But I'm sure one day I'll be back back at the mic. Oh, wow. That is so fun. I didn't realize New Hampshire had an industry for that. I know being in LA where we are, um, we I have a lot of, a surprising number of friends actually who work in voiceover. So that's so neat. I always forget that there really is an industry anywhere for those kinds of things. It's just that LA tends to be a hub, but New Hampshire, I can, I can see how that would make sense too. <laughs> Yes. Well, I used to live in Connecticut, so I would go into the New York studios. So, yeah, there's quite a hub there, too. So the home studio is something I haven't really done before. So it'll be an exciting adventure, see how that works out. Oh, interesting. So you'll be doing that instead of going to a physical location. Exactly. For the first time. So hopefully I can self-direct. Otherwise, I'm going to be in some trouble. But hopefully it all works (laughs) out. 
I mean, maybe it's just me being American and you having this beautiful British accent, but I think you have a lovely voice. So I can see how you've made a career out of this. That's very neat. Well, thank you. I think um, it's not so much a great voice, but it's uh, unusual enough and people don't find it threatening. So I tend <laughs> to get hired for a lot of these uh, industrial videos where they're like, you shall not do this or you'll go to jail and don't take bribes and all this. And it's all very stern. But I have such a non-threatening voice. People don't really <laughs> mind listening to them. So I think that's why I keep getting hired. That's so funny. Well, it's also funny you say that because I feel like the character of Constance has such authority um that it's so it's so funny to hear you say that you feel like you're kind of non-threatening voice when I imagine Constance just so headstrong and and vaguely threatening only in that she is so determined uh and so would love she to is. yeah my uh, my editor once said to me I wish I had 10 percent of the confidence that Constance has and I said me too I mean <laughs> Oh, absolutely. I know. I think that was what was really inspiring to me as a reader was reading about this headstrong person who is, you know, a woman in the Victorian England era when that is not as not as common, but not as uh, highly praised as it is now where I feel like all of the female empowerment is so important and we get to have this incredible uh example of the kind of person who stands up for themselves and goes after what they want and and it's just it was very fun to read so I would love to get into your book now with you um what is your connection to I mean fantasy romance steampunk science fiction there are so many different themes that you brought into this book what's your connection to all of these well, I grew up watching Doctor Who, which is a, a big television show in yes. England that's science fiction. Uh, from pretty much being a toddler, I remember hiding behind the sofas every time the Daleks came out. Yeah. And I think that got me started on this uh, road of enjoying science fiction and fantasy. Star Wars, Star Trek, Lord of the Rings. I mean, I, I loved it all. Um, and um, I just was an avid reader for everything from Heinlein and, and the, the classics up to uh, modern day writers, especially c comedic writers like uh, Neil Gaiman and Douglas Adams, science fiction yes. fantasy uh, that had a humorous tone was just something I loved my entire life. So it was natural when I came to write my first tale here that that's exactly what I drew on all these experiences. And the romance part of it uh, comes from two factors. When I was an undergraduate in England studying English, I actually did my dissertation on um, the changing face of romance in Mills and Boone books, which is sort of uh, the more traditional romantic novels. I won't say bodish rippers, but they were back in the <laughs> 70s and 80s. They were certainly quite saucy. And um, my dissertation was to show how women's roles and um, careers and so on changed in these books over time. They did become more independent and they did 
uh, start to take on more authority within the relationships and I found that interesting and also examined the fact that romance novels in literary terms are often put down um, you know they're not see seen as being quite serious because they are a prerogative of largely female readers and for that very reason it seems that uh, a lot of very talented writers are, are overlooked so the romance aspect came partly from that academic background, but partly because when I was writing my novel in Connecticut, I was uh, advised to join local writers groups, and one of them was the, uh, was the local romance writers group, because they said they accept all kinds of writers, science fiction, fantasy, you know, thrillers, whatever you write, that, you know, they'll take you in with open arms and uh, as a writer just celebrate what what you're doing and try and help you and they said hey uh, we love your book but you know needs more romance of course so <laughs> so i pumped up the romance a little bit on that side but at its heart this is a comedic science fiction and fantasy so it's an amalgamation of all these different elements um, with a touch of screwball comedy thrown in from the old movies if you think of things like bringing up baby, you know, Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn, crazy situations, a, 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 a really funny, smart couple bickering. That's what I love to watch and, yes. and that's what I wanted yes. to, to drive the action to the Brass Queen. And hopefully that's what I managed to achieve. I think so. I, that's one of my, those are my favorite kinds of romantic situations as well, where they are obviously very interested in each other, but also have that kind of playful dynamic where they're very smart and know how to push each other's buttons. I think those are my favorite things to aspire to in a relationship as well. And it's so funny, Gabe and I gave each other a look when you said Doctor Who, because that's something he and I used to watch together. Um, well, my, uh, my, I had a vanity plate on my mini in Connecticut and it was actually Doctor Who, D-R-W-H-O, was my license plate. And it started so many conversations everywhere I went. People would walk up, ah, Doctor Who! So it was fantastic. It was a great conversation starter. Um, I love so that. That's and that's so cool <laughs> that you were able to take your book to other writers groups. How many writers groups were you a part of? How many people got to put eyes on this before it made it to the publishing stage? Uh, not well, uh, through the Romance Writers Association at that time they ran a lot of contests so I would enter my um, the, the first few chapters, first one to three chapters into a lot of contests and you got feedback on them. So in terms of anonymous feedback from uh, who knows uh, who across, across the organization, I got a lot of written comments on those first three chapters. So in, in one sense, it was probably 100 people, uh, but in another, it was probably about 25 people through various uh, writing groups um, and also to editors who I would uh, uh, bring on board to look at various things. So um, all in all, I bet about 125 people say uh, looked at elements of the book before um, it, it actually went to uh, an, an actual agent. But before my um, submission to agent, I knew I had work to do. So I entered a contest called Pitch Wars. Uh, which um, I believe it's ended now, but it used to be quite a big thing for a few years where you would win a mentorship for three months. Oh. Um, you would submit your unpublished, finished manuscript and two professional writers would, would uh, 
take a look at it and make suggestions. Um, so they were really helpful because they helped me to, to uh, uh, restructure the novel so that it was easier to read because I found I had many flaws which is not to, to uh, which is exactly to be expected as a first time writer such as I would describe things in great detail. I mean, you knew the colour of the wallpaper and what was on the desk when the character walked in the room. Sure. But I should have been focusing on, sure. on the action and what was going on in their head. Um, so cutting down on that description was, was definitely one of the things that, uh, that I learned through Pitch Wars. And then when all that was done, I started sending it off to agents and I got an agent. She read it. She made suggestions. So that was edited again. Uh, then we went through the, the publishing um, routine where you send it out to all the different uh, publishers and eventually I got uh, signed with a publisher and then the editor took me through a few more revisions. So it's a very long process with a lot of people working on different parts of the novel. So although I wrote it, I mean, I had contributions from hundreds of people, some I know and some I don't, through the years. And, sure. and it really is, it really does take a village to produce one, one publishable novel yeah that makes a lot of sense that is so crazy so I assume then that you won pitch wars because it seems like you were able to get a mentor through that uh, yes, uh, the, myself and my cohort, we all won a spot in there, so I was very lucky to get to become part of that. Because I think that helps, uh, it helps as a springboard to be able to say I you know, won X amount of contests, because at this sure. point I had entered quite a few contests, and one of the things I learned from entering them was some people love my writing and some people hate it and that's okay you know uh, um, I'd win some contests in place nowhere in others and it, it's just a good lesson to know that um, you can be the best writer in the world I'm not but you could be and there will still be people who don't like your stuff and you could be the worst writers and, and people will still love your stuff so uh, it's uh, it's it's a good good education that what, what you're writing ultimately just write the best you can to please yourself and and right. your your readers yeah. will find it. Oh, I think that's such a great message. So you had so many people then with eyes on your book, and I love that you just kind of said it really is all about perspective. You know, who is your audience, and it's okay that some people aren't going to like your book, and it's okay that. Some people are going to love your book. How did you decide which criticisms to take? And how was that it, having so many people looking at your book? How was it dealing with all of these suggestions and criticisms for you? What What is your kind of process for dealing with that? Well, um, when I first read any criticism, I'm very constant. So I'm like, well, that can't be right. And then <laughs> I, I, I put it aside. And then, uh, then an hour later, I'll come back and be like, I'm more Truesdale. I'm more reasonable. I'm like, Oh yeah, that's that's a good point. And then finally, <laughs> I'll come back again as as as, as Elizabeth and be like, oh, why didn't I think of that? Of course, that's right. And then I make the change. So, so I I have a I have a little hill of resistance, but in the end, I, I get there and I usually make the change. And not all changes are uh, and not all suggestions are good. But sure. but um, usually, if someone's pointed out some things um, bothering them, then uh, there, there's usually some something behind it. Um, some people get bothered by uh, things that, that they feel are historically inaccurate, uh, but it's steampunk, so historically inaccurate is okay. You can have a ray gun that blasts 
a laser through a wall and, and you know that that's okay so so uh, you know you, you have to you have to be sensitive to this to the genre you're writing in as well and know if, if you're on the right track for your genre then uh, then it's best probably to pass by that kind of suggestion that you know it should only be this thing that was absolutely made at this point in time because right. that's part of the fun of it just just letting your imagination go Absolutely. That is very cool. I love that you said that you sometimes approach things as constants and sometimes as Truesdale, uh, which leads me yeah. to my next question. In what ways was or were your characters or just was the setting inspired by your experiences, your life? Well, um, I love science fiction and fantasy. I go to a lot of conventions and my husband and I would go and, and uh, cosplay and we started cosplaying uh, steampunk characters um, and he was uh, uh, this tall, handsome cowboy bodyguard and I was Miss Annabelle, uh, Lady Annabelle uh, um, Holt Whistle and um, we, we time traveled and you know, Oh dinosaurs on Mars and all this nonsense and you know it was just a bit of fun you go to these conventions a lot of people have a an alter ego and and uh, they're not very serious science fiction conventions some some folks can take the genres very seriously but steampunk just seems to be uh, people out to have a good time uh, because there's no um set uh, criteria for what is steampunk it's just vaguely victorian um futuristic weaponry and and um victorian style manners but with uh with uh, maybe futuristic gadgets on your clothing you know it's, it's whatever you want it to be sure. and uh, so it gave a lot of freedom so we, we already had these uh, characters just for fun and um so when i had to write my first story which i actually signed up for a writing class and they said you know your first exercise is world building uh that's exactly what i thought of i'm like oh well steampunk um, and so I just created this world and then the uh, the, the, the teacher uh, David Farland said well you know this you've really got something with this world here if you continue this and write a book um, I will I will check it out for you and give it feedback and as he was a New York Times best-selling sci-fi and fantasy author you know I couldn't not take him up on that so he was actually my first reader um, and um, gave me some great pointers and although it, there were hundreds of people after that uh, he was he was the first one to read it and it was all just stemmed from my love of steampunk conventions Wow, that is so interesting. I love that your characters are based off of you and your husband's alter egos. Yeah. That is so fun. Wow. Yeah, Tuesdale is, uh, is, is a bit like my husband in that he's just uh, very sensible and intelligent and like thinks things through and and although i don't have most of constance's worst habits you know the the, the sort of uh, reacting on impulse and and perhaps being a little bit eccentric that's more my bag <laughs> <laughs> but of course every character needs to have you know their own fun flaws and and things yes. as well <laughs> so absolutely yeah no one reads to wants to read about perfect people of course but I, so it sounds like these characters, even if just through you and your husband, were kind of developing on their own, in their own way, on their own schedule. And then you started building the steampunk world uh, separate from that. So I'm so curious exactly. about your writing process. How did you end up 
meshing the two together when you decided, okay, I am going to sit down and write this book. Did it just make so much sense to you to combine these two worlds of yours? Well, I've always had an overactive imagination. You know, I go off on adventures all the time. It's a blessing and a curse, you know. They put me in sure. a room waiting for the dentist or something, and I'll be off uh, um, in another century of fighting pirates. <laughs> who knows? Who knows what I get up to? And oh, I um, so I just tapped into that. I mean, I've always had these adventures. I actually once spoke to a friend of mine. Uh, who was a psychologist and, and we were discussing this and I said, oh, you know, and it's just like, you know, you go up and have your adventure and then you come back and you know, to get on with what you're doing. And she's like, you know, most people don't do that. <laughs> and I, I, I'm pretty sure they do, don't they? And, and apparently not not everyone does or they do it to different uh, different levels. So that was kind of an eye opener. It's like, oh, I just assumed everybody went and fought Sky Pirates the second they had a, a moment of downtown. But yeah, no, anyway, I guess I guess it was uh, uh, something I specialize in. So actually thinking up the story was, was super easy. It's like a, just a super long adventure. I imagine it like it's a movie and um, I just play the scene, if you will, over and over again until until it feels right and then I write it down. Um, so most of my writing is not really writing, it's just thinking about it. So I, I imagine the setting and I'll imagine the characters and th this is their motivation for being there and this is what they're concerned about right now. And, and they're, they're also you know, they're feeling very gassy because they had a bad breakfast or whatever. <laughs> and, and then the, somebody else comes in and they have an extra grind and all these situations. And I can play a scene maybe a oh, hundred times different ways, different camera angles, if you will, to see what really uh, appeals to me uh, in that scene. And then when it feels right, I start writing it down. And then I, um, I probably rewrite everything about 20 times to get it to a point where I'm like, oh, yeah, that's it. And at first, it, it's fairly factual. I mean, the, the dialogue just, my dialogue is pretty much how I wrote it when I when I first started out that's just I know the characters so well that it just comes out as it is but all the rest of it is sort of built around it and um, the, the the top layer if you will is the humor that's that's when I really start tweaking it at the end it's just like oh is this is this funny um, and um, I'm hoping there's something funny on every page or, or if I'm lucky even more than once so so um, I, I want the reader to be part of the joke as to what's going on and really have a good laugh and uh, that's the biggest compliment I've got from people who, who read the book. Sorry, my dog is, my dog's got something to say. Got something to say? Yeah. Um, the, the biggest compliment I've got is that uh, people actually laugh out loud when they're reading it. So that's something I really uh, appreciate because I've literally let them into my head because this is something I just imagined like a movie and now they're sharing it. And it's such a, a crazy thing as a writer that this this solitary these solitary adventures I had now are on uh, on the page, and you know there's there are libraries in New Zealand and Nigeria and the UK and Canada who have this on their shelves, and I'm sharing it with this unknown audience who hopefully are just reading it and laughing and enjoying the adventure. Absolutely. Well, I have questions about that too, but since you brought up your dog. <laughs> What is your dog's yes. name? Who is this beautiful oh, this is creature? Bruno. 
to um, full name is Boudicca of Hartwhistle Hall, and um, <laughs> she's seen a bird outside, so she's super excited right now. Uh, but there, there is um, in the book Constance's dog is is Boo Boudicca. Um, but I actually wrote the, the dog in the book before we got a dog and um, we were discussing different breeds and I'm like, well, my last dog was a Doberman and then my husband's like, are you kidding? You know what it has to be. It has to be a Yorkshire Terrier. So just like the book, here we go, got one Yorkshire Terrier and um, she's not as much of a terror as the, <laughs> as, the, as the one in the book, but she has her moments. And um, yeah, she's uh, she's a good girl. You're a good girl, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Oh so uh, it's best to keep her on my lap during podcasts and so on, <laughs> because um, if if I'm in here talking to the microphone, she assumes I've got someone in here, and then she's like, "Who is that?" And yeah. I need to investigate. And she just starts starts barking at the door, don't you? Yeah, she starts barking at the door, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And um, and you know that won't do. So so she usually just goes on my lap, and it, it's it's it works pretty well unless she just pops up in the middle of it, and people are like, "Oh!" <laughs> but but uh, yeah, most people are, most people like to see a, a cute puppy, yeah. so that works. Well, she's so precious. She seems like she's a good guard dog, too, if she's checking up on you. Terribly vicious. Yes, we call her Cujo. No, I'm not really. That's so funny. So, okay, sorry. Now back on track. I just had to admire your dog for a second. Thank you. Thank you. She is, she is my, uh, uh, my husband is my better half, but she's definitely, uh, definitely a, a good element of the family, the three of us. Oh, that's so sweet. Um, but yes, so you said that you play out the scene and all the different angles until it makes sense for you to write it down. Do you find that the scenes play out linearly or do you watch the entire movie in your head before you start writing things down? How does that work for you? Um, uh, linearly, which is really? probably really odd. Although I have, I do, I do have an idea of the end. You know, I have seen the end scene. The, 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 I guess the... Linearly is, is how I imagine it, but um, once I've gone through it, then, uh, you know, the, the different scenes can pop in at different times. Like if I'm working on scene three for whatever, I've, I've already seen the whole movie, so I know what the ending is. So I know what, you know, I should be dropping something here to go into that. Uh, and um, as, as something at that point might be like oh and I should also mention this in the final scene so then I make a note uh, I'm using Scrivener to, to take my notes to oh yeah add add airship in, in final scene and, and uh, that's how we work it out but because I've seen the whole thing already it's uh, it just sort of is fleshing it out from then and I write in a linear way so I start at chapter one and, and go go forward which apparently according to my writer friends is insane and you should you should write your like your pinch point your most important chapters first and then fill it out but for whatever reason my mind doesn't work until I start at the beginning and go to the end no everyone's process is different that is so neat uh I've we've kind of been having conversations with some of our other authors about whether they're um Colin Holmes referred to himself as a pantser flying by the seat of his pants and uh, Joe Crawford had said something similar, and so did, was it Christian Claver? Uh, Michael Bradley. Michael Bradley also had said something similar, um, just like letting the characters tell you the story. And then 
we are always curious is someone, do you feel like you're more of a pantser or a planner? But it sounds like you are somewhere in the middle where you kind of, you have this idea, but the characters are telling you how to get that picture. That is so neat. Yeah. That is so fun. Wow. Well, it sounds like you have a very lovely mind. Super interesting. <laughs> I, you probably are someone who is rarely bored. <laughs> I'm never bored. I, I've never understood when folks like, oh, I'm so bored. Like, how can you be bored? Like, there's everything <laughs> in what the universe going on around you. And what's in here is I just don't have time in the day uh, to, <laughs> to, be, to bored. be bored. It's just it's way too much to do. Oh, my gosh. I love that so much. <laughs> um I hope to, I, I'd like to think I have a generally active imagination, but I hope to get to a place someday where I can say, how can you possibly have time in the day to be bored? <laughs> that is a perspective I absolutely love. So you said a lot of this is just, you know, the steampunk world doesn't really have a set format of what it has to be. You just live in it. Um, but Victorian England, I feel like, does have a little bit more structure. So what kind of research did you have to do to merge these two worlds or just in, in general to inform your story? Well, I was very lucky growing up in Sheffield in Yorkshire uh, because we were a hub of industry in Victorian times. So I grew up surrounded by the steelworks and the, the River Don and the, the uh, cutlery works and uh, that industrial background really gave me a good insight into what life is was like uh, to a certain element in Victorian times because the buildings are still there. I go and do my shopping down the high street and I'm surrounded by Victorian buildings and the Victorian town hall. So um, you're, you're in the midst of this uh, this time frame almost every day you're, you're outside. Uh, so when I came to writing the story, I knew I wanted to set it in my hometown and um, I actually used the Victorian Town Hall that I've been going to since I was a tiny tot as, a, as one of the main locations uh, because Queen Victoria in real life, the real Queen Victoria, actually visited there in 1897 to open that town hall. So I used that as a feature in my book, uh, part of the plot that Queen Victoria is coming to Sheffield and Constance, my heroine, is in charge of arranging all the flowers for the grand parade through the town. Yes. Now in real life I did a lot of research on this grand parade and it, there were commemorative brochures, everybody had the day off work, they had uh, choirs of children singing, people wearing their Sunday best, they had huge flower um, arches over all the roads just really over the top uh, floral displays and all the all the um, industrial things were on display brass bands everywhere uh, it was just the biggest thing that had happened to Sheffield to, to that point and I took all those elements and I added um, airships and a big sky pirate battle over <laughs> Enclin Park um, and um, assassination attempts on Queen Victoria's life by our, by our evil villain there, Prince yes. Lucian in my book and just sort of jazzed up what had actually happened and um, I did a, a research into my into the town and I found so many wild and interesting facts um, for instance, on this very town hall, there is a carving 
of a knight kicking a dragon up the backside with a pointy toe of his armoured suit. And this all comes from a, a really raucous drinking song that was popular in England from the, uh, in Sheffield area from the 1600s on. So I took that fact, made that into um, Constance Holtwistle's family shield because she's an aristocrat. They have the dragon being kicked up the derriere by this knight. And of course, that's one of Constance's uh, uh, ancestors. And, you know, that this is how the, the family are known as these uh, no-hold bars fighters. Um, and so it, the actual things I just brought into the book. So if, if you are an aficionado of Sheffield facts and, and uh, historical um, interesting points, which of course everybody is, you'll actually <laughs> find them in this book if you look hard enough. So so that was part of the fun of it was, was doing that research. Yeah, I, it sounds like such a fun time. And it sounds like you were able to pull in so much from your own experience and doing your research and in informing your book as well. So I guess a question that I think has kind of been, you know, sirening at the back of my mind this whole time, and uh, I think I'm finally able to articulate is, where was the connection for you between like aristocrat, sky pirate, arms dealer, and inventor? There, there were, Constance wears a lot of hats. <laughs> So how were yes. you able to marry all these ideas? Also, what made you think of each of these individual ideas? Uh, how, how, what did that whole process of creating this character look like for you? Because this is also someone that you do a lot of cosplay as to some extent, you know, based off of, I guess rather, she is based off of the person you do a lot of cosplay as. So uh, Annabelle yeah. Holtwistle, how fun. So, yeah, she was actually, uh, she ended up being Constance's mum in the book. Uh -huh. She's sadly deceased um, because, of, you know, uh, but, but um, I think, how did I marry all the different aspects together? I think it's because if you read any romance novel, uh, there's always a fiery heroine. So um, I wanted to take that fiery heroine who might be like a, a, a level 10 and just kick it up to like level 50. It's like, oh, she's not only a fiery heroine, she's got flaming red hair and she shoots a flamethrower and she invents them and, you know, and, and all these different hats. It's like, oh, you know, the fiery heroine has an interesting career. Oh, well, Constance is running an arms empire as well as trying <laughs> to be the fine lady uh, at the court and, and, you know, impress the local area aristocracy so everything that you could find of that type of character I just kicked it up a few notches and if you like those kind of characters you'll find this hilarious because you know how over the top she is yes. and the beauty of it is the character she's so naive she's actually had although she's doing all these things she's had actually a rather sheltered uh, childhood growing up on this ancestral estate this country estate uh, surrounded by her servants because her father's absconded off to another dimension to live with an alternate version of her mother that would be Annabelle oh. um, so she's she's had this really bizarre upbringing and um, so she on the one hand she's very strong-willed she she'll run this arm empire she doesn't think twice about the morals of it until later when she's met Truesdale and she's starting to rethink her life choices um, but she she's 
also very naive and protected from, from the real world. So, so there's a certain sense that she's larger than life, but also quite vulnerable and a little bit lonely at the heart of it all. And I think that's one of the reasons the folks who do love Constance really do love Constance. Cause it's like, oh, I get it. She's all this, all the great heroine stuff, but she's really quite quite uh, soft and squidgy at, at, at the center there and you know she just needs someone like Truesdale to to bring that side out of her and you bring together all those extreme characteristics and that eventual heart of gold that that beats beneath that chainmail corset that she wears and and you've got a really amazing woman and people like to read about her yeah, no, I know. I absolutely loved reading that. And I think it's like you said, you 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 feel that heart of gold. You you resonate with it. She's a very relatable character, even though she also feels like she's one-upped you in every sense of the word. She is better than you at everything, but still yes. relatable in someone that you look up to and admire in a fictional character. So that's very cool. And then yeah. what about Truesdale? I know, you know, he seems largely based on even in somewhat of an alter ego of yours, the, the version who goes through and sees criticism and says, ah, well, they may have a point. Um, and yes. then your husband, of course, as well. So how did Truth, yeah. the character of Truesdale come together? And even, yeah, well, I'm curious about that first. I have more questions blooming in my mind. Yes. Well, again, in, in many romance novels, or even action movies, your hero is always a spy, or he's a cowboy, or he's an you know, astronaut. He's always larger than life as well. And so I took two tropes, the, the cowboy and the spy, and married them together to have this American cowboy spy. Um, and uh, there's a lot of, uh, going back to Shakespeare and way beyond that there's always those mistaken identities people pretending to be who they're not and so on it just makes uh, its heroes even more interesting when they have all these different layers of deception going on and so he's actually playing the part of his deceased brother to try and worm his way into the uh, into the local steamworks which is where all the the British Empire which is kind of a, a bit of an evil British Empire not at all like the lovely British Empire we had in real life it was even worse than that <laughs> and he's trying to kind of get all the state secrets of all the uh, steam powered weaponry and so on so he he's the amalgamation of those different larger than life hero roles of the cowboy and uh, and the spy um, and um, he, in terms of temperament, he is rather like my husband. He's just he's very laid back and uh, very logical, and constantly flummoxed by uh, Constance's eccentricities, which is a little bit like us. Um, but he's also the everyman in the story. Like he's the the book is actually written over half from from Truesdale's perspective, which surprises people because they think, oh, it's all Constance because she's you know she's she starts and ends the book, and it's about her journey and it is but what we're seeing is Truesdale's view of her like he's the one who's introducing us to this crazy world that she lives in and trying to make some sense of it while also trying to do his job as a spy and and um, and you know not get hung because that's a very real possibility for him living in danger through this novel he is basically a spy in a foreign land and could get in a lot of trouble um, and his 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 viewpoint of Constance is, 
at first he's like, wow, she's just crazy. And then he starts to slowly fall for her. And hopefully as a reader, you are going on that journey with him. You're like, oh, okay, I do. I say the sensitive side. Oh, you know, she's she's a no-holds-bars kind of lady. She's just stomping up to a policeman and going, well, what's all this then? And taking charge of a, of a situation. He loves that about her. And I hope the reader will love that about her too. It's never a mistake for a woman to be confident and in charge of a situation and um, the fact that he loves that about her is I hope inspiring to the ladies who read and uh, I hope um, it encourages guys to say yeah okay that's the kind of woman I want the woman who's large and in charge oh I love that so much I love that also you wrote a little bit of Constance's character through this is the kind of woman that we should sure all want to kind of be like resonate with but this is something that people do find attractive too I think and a lot of romance things women are kind of portrayed as sheepish and shy and and there are women who don't fit that mold who are also wonderful larger than life and who have the ability to find love and I feel like it's so fun for me as someone who I think resonates more with that than the kind of shy um characters that I see a lot in books and movies I I find that very inspiring and very cool so thank you yeah, for writing um, that <laughs> sure. uh, hopefully she's got that soft side as well of course uh, so you, you, you've got to be you know you've got to have those elements like the adventurous no-nonsense confident go-getter but be kind be be soft be gentle uh, as well um she does she does honestly love her her servants, for instance, um, who've been with her, her entire life. That doesn't mean she doesn't accidentally shoot one of them, Corley, with, <laughs> with rock salt, because these things happen in Constance as well. But underneath it all, she she does care. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting. She, but she is an extreme character. I certainly don't encourage anyone to go out and start inventing ray guns and, <laughs> um, and uh, you know, so on. It's like, you know, take, take her with a pinch of salt because she is a comedic character in the end. Oh, sure. And fictional, all of the things. But yeah. I think it's very fun to have someone like that in just a literary space or, or in... Uh, in, in a positive role, I think, because, yes. like I said, we just there's not a lot of media that creates that, so it's super fun. Um, okay, this Bye. is a little bit of a shift, but it's one of those questions that I think bloomed in my mind all of a sudden that I mentioned a minute ago. Um, talking about the uh, interdimensional travel and even like scientists and the truth serum, those are a whole other element of the book. The the this more sci-fi aspect of the book. Um, and then you had mentioned you have a strong connection with Doctor Who. Did that inform at all your desire to make this kind of interdimensional, um, very scientific, heavy book? Yes. Uh, Doctor Who, for instance, the, there are multiverses. Yes. Uh, and there is a multiverse in my universe. And I think it's a, a brilliant tool for a writer to explore all different aspects, different worlds, but also different elements of character. Like Constance opens this book saying, uh, the first line of the book is, the grass was always greener in another dimension. Uh, Constance wonder, uh, Hulk Whistle wonders if an alternate version of herself 
was actually enjoying her coming out ball. So it's just starting, I paraphrase there, so don't at me. I know, I know, <laughs> it's close. Um, uh, so Constance starts the book thinking about an alternate version of herself in an unknown multidimensional uh, existence are they having a better time than me? Because that's exactly how Constance thinks about it. Are they all having a better time than I am right now? Well, you know, because that's just her mindset. And and she's constantly aware that she's always one of many. And her father has gone off to this other dimension to, to live with this alternate version of her mom. And the male version of Constance, who's Constantine, and, you know, her father... They have, she chats with her father via an interdimensional inter telephone for, for video phone, for want of a better word, later on. Um, and, you know, he's glowing about his, the, you know, Constantine, such a chip off the old block. And she's going, well, I'm the chip, not him. And she's <laughs> so annoyed about it. And it's uh, that it's just such a, a great vehicle for, for comedy and drama and this sense of where you really are in this universe. We're one speck of dust in this universe, but that universe is a speck of dust amidst all the other universes. I mean, imagine the possibilities. Again, going back to never being bored, it's just like <laughs> you could have, write so many adventures. And as a, a writer, that's one of the harder things is like, which one do you write? Because it's just never ending once you once you uh, start using that trope. And then Doctor Who does it brilliantly. Obviously, they use time travel as well, which uh, it isn't part of um, uh, Constance's world, or at least not yet. Um, but I, I wrote a short story, my, my first publication, actually, 10 minutes past tea time. It was a novelette about a Victorian lady scientist who uh, goes back in time with her steampunk um, the time travel machine, which is very Doctor Who. Hers is a, an actual submersible that's shaped like a goldfish. Anyway, she, she's inside this thing. She goes back to Viking times and ends up um, um, becoming lovers with a female Viking uh, chieftain who is in the middle of attacking a, um, a, a monastery and things have gone gone to heck in a handbasket and the two of them end up bonding <laughs> and then they end up popping into the submersible and potentially going on new adventures um, across time and space. So not in any way a Doctor Who ripoff, but my goodness, wouldn't that be fun to read with the ladies uh, doing their thing across time and space? Oh, absolutely. Well, speaking of your other things that you're working on or have worked on, I know that you're currently in the process of creating The Brass Queen too. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Sure. Well, it's called The Brass Queen Grand Plan, and it's the tale of Constance and her motley crew who have headed off to Europe and get involved in a series of heists involving alien artifacts. So just to give you a little taste, uh, the book opens with Constance stomping through Paris in the wee hours, uh, trying to get mugged because she's trying to test out a new weapon she's developed, which is a an electric gauntlet based on Truesdale's gauntlet, but a more ladylike version, so that you can go out to the opera and then zap villains on the way home. So she's trying to get mugged. Uh, Truesdale's stomped off. He's you know they've had a huge fight, and um, that's just the opening. And then 
the um, academic thugs from the British Museum show up because at the end of the Brass Queen, Constance has, has been forced to transport the, her, her ancestral home, Hotwistle Hall, off to another dimension and her father had been keeping all the treasures from uh, the British Museum stuffed into the dungeons and uh, that's all been transported too. So they're all off in, a, in another dimension and unfortunately Constance can't remember which one and the British Museum want them back. So they ended up, the crew ends up going on this mad heist to find these alien artifacts so they can generate the energy so they can open an interdimensional portal to get Hot Whistle Hall back. But then the villain of the piece steps in and all heck breaks loose. So uh, there's, uh, it's, it's really fun. There's a lot of different locations, new characters, a lot of the old characters as well. Um, the, the big bad, uh, the big villain finally comes onto the scene. Uh, plus King Oscar, who was is, who is a sort of behind the scenes villain in book one. Um, now uh, all the players are coming onto the stage and um, they are all out to get Constance and she's not having any of it. <laughs> well, that's amazing. I'm so excited for that to come out. Is that 2023? It is. I think it's December 2023 is the plan. Very exciting. Well, I really look forward to reading that one as well. And speaking of reading, I know you're a big bookworm. So what are you reading right now? Oh, it's um, actually, it's behind me. It's called... Oh gosh, it's something like um, the the women who became dragons or something. It's uh, you know I can't see it now. Oh, when women were dragons. That's what I'm reading. It's a bit sad I couldn't remember the title, but uh, yeah, I'm currently reading when women were dragons. I love that. That really fits in with the narrative that I feel like you've created for us about your imagination running wild. That feels very in alignment with the kind of things you would be reading and thinking about. I love it so much. Yes, absolutely. I mean, but we all need a little bit of dragon now and again. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for joining us. This has been so much fun. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed it. It's lovely to meet you. So lovely to meet you as well. And to our listeners back home, you can find The Brass Queen in audiobook, ebook, and print formats on our website, camcatbooks.com. Or, yes, thank you, Elizabeth is showing us the book. Uh, or wherever books are sold. And you can listen to Camcat Unwrapped on all major podcasting platforms or watch us on our YouTube channel. And make sure you follow us on social media at CamCatBooks. There's Boo! <laughs> So sweet. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and unwrapping another one of our books to live in with me. My name is Jess, and I'll see you next time here on CamCat Unwrapped.